What's up everyone? This is Daryl Terrell with The Real World and welcome to episode number 45. Tonight's guest is Megan Joan and she is from Redondo, California. She is a yoga instructor, fitness trainer, and we are going to discuss a time in her life when she was dealing with anorexia where she's at now, how she overcame it, and so much more. So let's welcome Megan Joan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm really excited to be able to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And um, let's get into this. I, I have been following you for a while. We became friends through Instagram. And mm -hmm. it was very fascinating reading your story on where you were and what you are doing now. Let's go into that. How did you get at that point in your life? And we'll start there. Um, how did I get to, I mean, the eating disorder started really, really young for me. Um, I was diagnosed for the first time when I was 12 years old. And it probably started more um, when I was 11. Uh, my first hospitalization, I was 12. Um, and then it went on off and on uh, really until I was about 24 years old. So it was pretty much uh, all of all of my life. Um, and I was very much, I lived on the East Coast, so I'm from Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and yeah, and now I'm in California, so I made the switch. And uh, uh, back then, in that time, the approach that they took to um, eating disorders was very, it was called the, the Bodsley method. Um, and it was very much, especially for, for kids and adolescents, the family was very heavily involved. So uh, my mom really was all in as far as scheduling doctor's appointments every week, making all my meals, sitting with me and forcing me to eat. Uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, um, like self motivation to get better. It was very much, um, my parents and doctors stepped in right away and started, you know, making me eat and taking away this thing that I was like, wait a minute, I'm really good at this. Like, mm -hmm. wait a minute, I'm really, really good at losing weight. Like, why, why are you trying to make me fat? Um, which is, you know, as a 12 year old was kind of what I thought. So I fought it. Um, and I was, would drop weight. And when I lost enough weight, I would go into a hospital or into treatment and then I come out and I go right back to school and, uh, sports and everything until I lost weight again and then went back into the hospital. So it was very in and out, in and out. Um, uh, probably until, my freshman year of college, I managed Whoa. to stay out for a little bit and ended up relapsing in college again. Did, um, was there something that you was after or was it just the feeling of being skinny or lean? What what was... Um, so for me, I think it's... For me, it was really different um, than I think... I think a lot of women, when they start an eating disorder at a later age it has a lot more to do with wanting to be attractive or starting with feeling fat and for me it never had anything to do with um wanting to look more attractive or thinking that i was super fat um i was really healthy i was an athlete I, you know i was 
captain of a couple of basketball teams. I played every sport that there was. Um, for me, it stemmed from this need to be perfect. This need, this feeling of I'm not good enough unless I am the best at everything. And I did so many things that it was really tough for me to find tangible evidence that I was the best at it. Mm. Um, and so I, I found that, you know, 11 or 12, like girls start to talk about dieting and, you know, oh, I, I can't diet. I could never do that. And I was like, well, I wonder if maybe that's something I could be really good at. And so it started as like a competition um, between me and my friends of who was better at eating healthy was what it started as. That was actually going to be my next question for you. Yeah. Who was you competing against? And you just answered that. When did it start to become unhealthy after you felt like you were competing against your friend to lose weight? Were you really overweight or were you just felt like you was overweight? I was never overweight. Um, I've been the same height since I've been 12. So I'm five foot three. Um, and I think the heaviest I weighed was about 102 pounds, which according to BMI is like still pretty low. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a lot of muscle. Um, so I was never, I was, you know, really healthy. Uh, it was, but once I started to lose weight, I did get the compliments of, Oh, you look so good. Mm -hmm. Oh, how are you losing weight? And the way I interpreted it was less about you look good, you look attractive. It was more about, wow, you have so much willpower and self-control. And I was like, yes, and I'm going to harness that and I'm <laughs> going to keep going and show you all how much willpower and self-control I have. Um, and kind of going back to the perfectionism, when I started focusing all of my energy and attention on losing weight and eating less, it kind of made me not have to worry about being perfect at everything else. Hmm. I knew that I was really successful at this one thing because I could see the scale going down. And as long as the scale was going down and as long as the calories I ate were less than what I, you know, had deemed okay for the day, mm -hmm. then I could feel some pride that I was doing something really well. Yeah. Um, also, I could, you know, I remember being on the basketball court and being like, oh, damn, like, I wish I had, you know, scored more. And then I could kind of quiet that perfectionism voice by saying, but you didn't eat breakfast or but you lost weight. So you don't really have to be the best at this because you have this other thing that you're doing really well at. And so that kind of became my escape from that self-critical voice. Got you. You know, I, I hear, you know, what you're saying, and it seems like so many women deal with this internally of mm -hmm. needing yeah. and feeling like they need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But, you know, now that you are where you are today, was it really about being perfect? Um, I think for me, the need for perfectionism uh, or the need to be perfect or the need for that validation really came from this idea that um, I wasn't really comfortable with who I was as a person. Um, and this is not to blame my, my parents or anything because, you know, there's no instruction book for being a parent and we all just, you know, generationally learn as we go. 
Um, my mom, my grandmother had my mom when she was 17. And my mom was one of six kids. She was the oldest of six kids. So my mom grew up being a parent. Mm -hmm. um, my mom at a very early age was a second parent. Um, and being a second mother to all of her siblings, you know, and so she was always very good, very by the rules, very organized, very like, you know, good girls don't make waves, responsible, all of that. And when I came out and started getting a personality and an attitude, and I've always, you know, just been very opinionated. And I've always been very candid with my opinions, even at like a very, very young age. Um, and I don't think my mom knew how to handle that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she knew how to handle me being just a very expressive person in general. Right. Um, and I got the feeling that who I was as a person wasn't acceptable, that I needed to be quieter, um, be softer, be less vocal, less opinionated, less of who I really was. Um, I think also my, I have, I have a lot of my dad's personality traits. Um, we are very, very similar as far as personality goes. And I watched the dynamic between my parents of my mom not really um, loving my dad and not really appreciate, you know, just they just didn't have it. You yeah. know, he didn't, mm -hmm. she didn't really appreciate him. And I thought, well, I'm so much like him. If I'm really my true self, my mom is not going to like me or approve of me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think internally that led to me really seeking out another way to feel okay about myself because I really didn't feel okay about who I was as a person. Yeah. And that's what kind of trickled into the need to achieve. Yeah. You know, as Jung, you know, just speaking on behalf of, you know, what you just mentioned about your mom, you know, mm -hmm. my mom had me at 15. Yeah. You know, and as a child, they can't really influence another child yes the right way and you know and it almost leaves us to a certain extent of trying to figure this life thing out ourselves mm -hmm. and and sometimes it's good sometimes it's bad and sometimes you are born with a voice and you want to express yourself like you said but how has that changed since then versus now? Um, I think one of the really positive aspects of me going into treatment um, multiple times was that I was forced to, I was taken out of my home and put in a situation with a bunch of other people that I didn't really know. And we all had eating disorders, so that wasn't the thing that made me individual anymore. Um, that wasn't like the one thing that I could identify myself as. We all kind of were in the same boat. So I, I really had to get to know who I was mm -hmm. and how to relate to people and how to connect to people. And throughout the years, um, I found that there are people who are, you know, just naturally drawn to my personality that we... Um, that feeling of having, you know, shared shared thoughts or shared experiences or shared um, opinions on things uh, really made me more appreciative of 
my personality and who I was and, you know, being sarcastic or whatever, like, you know, it's a very um, acquired taste, mm -hmm. my, like the sense of humor that I have. And some <laughs> people, you know, I really had to accept that some people will be really drawn to it. And some people like my mom just don't appreciate it. And that's okay. It doesn't, you know, if everybody liked you, life would be really boring. Right. That's so true. I mean, so many times I feel like we as people almost, it's like a natural instinct that we can't even exist without the approval of someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we live life so much like that, it ends up dictating exactly how we feel, exactly who we are as a person. And mm -hmm. the longer I feel like that goes on, the more we lose who we are and the further it's going to take us to get back to us as a person. Yes, so. exactly. I have two thoughts on that. One is that um, I can definitely relate to that and growing up feeling like I, you know, had no really good friends, but I was friends with everybody because I was really good at molding my personality to fit those around me. Um, so I could get along with everybody. And then at the end of the day, I was left wondering, well, do they really like me or do they, do they like the personality that I've specifically curated just for them? You know, mm -hmm. um, and you, you start to lose who you are. You don't really know. You don't really, would these people still like me if I was, you know, authentically me? Mm -hmm. Um, and who even is that? Uh, so doing a lot of exploring about things that I'm passionate about, like what makes me excited? Mm -hmm. um what people do i get excited about hanging out around who gives me energy yeah what qualities in people do i want to emulate um and then my second thought is i don't know if you've ever watched Brene brown's ted talk on um vulnerability but that's a a huge one for me i when i lead uh teacher trainings for new yoga instructors i always show them that that um the one block between true happiness and true joy is this experience of of shame and guilt mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and the only way to get over shame and guilt is to truly be connected and seen by right. somebody mm -hmm. all of your flaws all of your shame all of it um and see that they still love you instead of holding all those things back for fear of rejection so the more vulnerable we are the more we expose, you know, the good and the bad sides of ourselves, right. the more we can be truly seen and experience connection and joy, which is so counterintuitive to the way a lot of us grew up. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, I feel like almost that it's really hard for people to truly authentically be themselves yeah. for one reason or another. I mean, in, in, I've dealt with it. I mean, anybody that feels like you have to do some particular thing just for your friend to go, hey, hey, uh, you know, she, him, you know, just to get that validation mm -hmm. comes with a lot of consequences. Yeah. For sure. And I, I mean those consequences that we start losing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, but my next question for you is, uh, you know, you were talking about when you were in the treatment center. 
What about the treatment center itself really played a positive influence on your life? Yeah, going back to the East Coast and what they offered as far as treatment back then, um, I would I would say that it was very much like very forceful. Like you didn't have a lot of rights. There was there was some shady stuff going on. Like we were forced to take medication that was being kind of promoted by drug companies to the treatment center. Wait for, a minute. Wait a minute. So I wouldn't say like all of it was good. I did have some good experiences. Is this real life though? I mean. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you've ever seen Girl Interrupted, it's like the, you know, 20, 2013, 20, um, no way, it was way before then. It's so like 20, 2005 version of that, like the updated version. Um, there was definitely like a lot of not great, you know, and I always try to operate under the assumption that people are really doing the best they can. But we definitely had psychiatrists come in that were like, hey, there's this new drug on the market. You know, the drug company is paying us to, like, give this to people. Um, and like promote it to you almost? Yeah, pretty much. And we didn't have a choice, you know, because we were, I mean, most of the centers I was in back then, I was underage. So mm -hmm. I wasn't. I would have signed myself out if I was 18. So I was there and I, I had to comply. I remember like they, there was this one medication um, that I won't name because I'm sure people have had positive experiences with it. For me, it, it made me like um, almost narcoleptic. Like I would fall asleep standing up and I was like, I really don't want to take this medication. And they would sit down with me and they would like have to watch me take it like open my mouth like i wasn't allowed to leave until i swallowed type thing um and i i'm i'm sh at least like a solid month i was just out of it like asleep all the time like this totally sounds like something that you would see in a movie at a psychiatric yeah. ward oh man i i sometimes wish we had you know made <laughs> some sort of a reality show about it because I mean, in their defense, I was awful. Like I was defiant. Um, and so they probably just had to sedate me to get my weight up and get me out of there because insurance companies were going to stop paying at some point. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of it was just not great experience. Um, I, I will say, though, there is a treatment center out here that I went to, and this was after when I relapsed in college that was really, really great. Uh, mm -hmm. Center for Discovery, they're everywhere. There's one in, I was at the one in our, in Palos Verdes um, in California, and um, I think I was at a point, though, where I finally realized, it took me about 14 years to realize that my eating disorder was not in my control. Um and so I actually wanted the help at that point. Mm -hmm. um, I actually wanted to figure out how to like live without it. Um, and they were very much like personal accountability was a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, was you either want to be here or you don't. Like you take responsibility for your actions. Like you either get better or you don't. We're not going to force you to do anything. And then at that point, you actually have to sit down and be like, well, crap, like, I really have to do the work here. Right. How did that, 
with them really not putting any peer pressure on you play more of a role than the other clinics that you were at. Yes, they made you take um, particular, you know, specific drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But how was the non-pressure clinic beneficial for you? So I really think I got to a point where, like I said, I realized that it was not in my control anymore. Um, I think prior, again, I'm not blaming, you know, my family or my parents. I think they were really just trying to keep me alive, but I was always kind of stopped before mm -hmm. it got too bad. Like I would get to pretty low weight and then somebody would step in and put me in a treatment center and then I would get out and lose the weight again. And I was like, guys, just let me do this. Like, just let me do what I want to do. Um, and then later when I was in college, I had a period where I was like doing okay. And then um, I ended up getting really sick. I got mono and I started losing a lot of weight again. Um, and again, I got really, really just into that, that feeling of validation and pride from, from losing weight. Uh, and it got to a point where I was very, very sick. Um, I didn't have any doctors stepping in. I didn't, um, see my family a lot. So I didn't have anybody to intervene. And I just like my, when you're that malnourished, your brain is like crazy. You go manic. Like I remember just pacing the mall because I, I wouldn't allow myself to sit down, um, because I had to burn more calories and, uh, I was eating maybe like a bag of 12 ounces of cauliflower and a yogurt a day. And then I would sit in the parking lot of the gym because, you know, I want, I needed to get on the treadmill and I was just crying because I didn't know if I like physically could. And I would drive like back and forth from the gym, like five times, but I just couldn't make up my mind. Um, you know, I could feel okay. And then I get there and then I feel like I can't do this. And then my brain would tell me I was lazy. And like, it was just this back and forth in my head that I couldn't control. Mm -hmm. um, and then on my 24th birthday, um, I ended up just overdosing. I took a, a sh bunch of laxatives and a bunch of Tylenol PM. Um, and I was at a very, very low weight and I started having seizures in my bed alone in my it was summer break. So nobody's there. So I was alone in my dorm room and I just distinctly remember thinking like, well, like I could call for help. Mm -hmm. If I called for help, I would have to go back into treatment. I would have to gain weight again. Um, or I'm probably going to die here. And I was like, you know, dying actually sounds better than gaining weight and going into treatment at this point. Um, and that was when I was like, well, you know, maybe, maybe I can't turn this around on my own. Maybe this isn't just something that I'm doing because I want to be skinny or something. Right. Um, when you speak about your weight, what was your weight? Was it low 100s? Um, so I try not to like speak about it because I know for people that watch it, it can be it, it, that listeners see things it can be you know, triggering to hear numbers. Okay. Um, okay. That's fair. There's a lot of like comparison of like, oh, well, I didn't get that low, so I'm not sick. So, you know, my eating disorder isn't valid. Um, so I will put out a disclaimer, whoever listens to this, like trigger warning or whatever. Uh, my lowest, I was about 50 pounds. Okay. Um, 50 pounds as yeah. an adult woman. 
Mm-hmm. 50 pounds as an adult. I'm just really trying. Okay. You know, I posted the photo of you then and you now. Was that 50 pounds? That was probably about 60 pounds. Uh, after I, you know, after I took that, I probably, I kept going for a while and I didn't, you know, I didn't have the energy to take more photos. And I want to say that, like, I didn't think I was fat in those photos. Like, I, I didn't think I was fat at all. I knew I was skinny. I knew I was underweight. Um, my, my goal was to look as sick as possible because the sicker I looked, the better I was doing at my eating disorder. The more willpower it meant I had, the stronger I was. Got you. Got the, you. I was the the best anorexic there was. Um, you know, and so I didn't think that it was attractive. No part of me wanted to be attractive. In mm-hmm. fact, like if somebody found me attractive, I took that as a sign that I wasn't sick enough. Um, and why, Megan? So I do. Why? What? And why? If someone saw you attractive. You took that as if you wasn't sick enough, but mm-hmm. why? Um, because if I still looked attractive to somebody, then it must mean that I still somehow looked healthy or resembled like a human. And I, I really just wanted to look sick. Like I wanted to look. I, and I think also I do have to go back to uh when i first went into treatment um and a lot in in that kind of eating disorder environment there is a competition to be the sickest Mm -hmm. because the sickest one is the one that deserves the most care the sickest one is the one that deserves to be there and is allowed to eat um and so that was you know there was that competitive aspect that was instilled in my brain very very early on um and there are lots of communities online that in in like the dark web that, you know, encourage women to get eating disorders and share tics, tricks and tips of how to, you know, beat the system and lose weight and all that stuff. And um, I, I was still very much competing in my head with that idea of wanting to be the sickest. Wow. That's in. It's incredible. That. Number one, that you knew it. So many girls that go through that are in so big of denial, but yet Mm -hmm. you are exact opposite and you know it. And I was very, yeah, I was very aware. Like, you can ask any of my therapists, I knew exactly why I did what I did. Um, I knew what it did for me, I knew where the thoughts came from. Um, you know, I could knew my family dynamics, everything. I just didn't want to stop. Yeah, I guess I'm. I really hold on. There's a gift from Zoom. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I want us to rewind a little bit. Mm-hmm. You said that you started this at a very young age with your eating disorder. Yeah. And 
I feel like that was before you went into the competition with the other young lady, right? Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong at any point. And um, and so we're going back further, and you're this little girl, okay? What was it in your life that provoked this situation? You know, I'm really fortunate. I don't have any trauma um, or like capital T trauma, you know, any mm-hmm. like big events that, that actually happened to me. Um, I will say that it was definitely a combination of that feeling about not uh, my personality really not being okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a very, very small town. So all of my experience and interactions was really just with my family. Um, and I went to a private school. So all of my friends didn't live close. We all saw each other at school. Uh, so I'll, I'll say that it was, it was feeling like my personality was a lot. Um, I also went to a Catholic school, uh, a very small private Catholic school starting from kindergarten, um, which again, like very quiet, like good girls don't make waves or have opinions all of that stuff, mm-hmm. which is very like, just not the person I was inside. Um, and so again, like having to deny parts of myself. Uh, also my mom is a dietitian. My mom was a registered dietitian. So uh, she wasn't unhealthy with, she was like the most balanced, intuitive. Like if I, it, you know, I would raise my kids exactly the same way with the eating habits, you know, that she raised me. Um, however, she did come in to classrooms and do demonstrations. Like we would measure out Crisco, how much Crisco was in a bag of chips or how much sugar was in a box of cereal. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I felt like I had to be the good example to all of my friends about like, Omega would never eat this because her mom's a dietitian. Or I remember my friend's parents saying to me, Oh my gosh, you're so, you have so much self-control. Like you're so healthy. Like, could you teach my daughter to do that? And I was like, you know, that just like stroked my ego Mm -hmm. so much. Um, and so I think that might've been one of the reasons that I turned to food. If it hadn't have been food, I I probably would have turned to some other addiction, but like it would have been alcohol or something. And why? Um, uh, Anxiety and depression run really, really heavy in my family. And um, so does addiction. And I think anytime somebody feels that they really have to deny themselves who they are as a person, anytime somebody feels like they have to shut down aspects of themselves, um, they will turn to something else outside of them to make them feel better, to kind of ease that pain. Do you feel like a lot of people that go through, you know, if they have one fix that they're focused on and and then they go to another fix, do you mm-hmm. think that was some of your trait at all on what you're doing you that you're going oh, through yourself? Sure. Yeah. For sure. Um anytime I I'm like a zero to a hundred person, you know, I'm either not interested or I'm like hundred percent focused in it. I'm going to be the best that I can be. And I do think that that's just how I am about things. Uh, and it can become unhealthy. 
And I noticed myself doing that with lifting for sure, which is why I um, kind of veered towards more powerlifting than I did bodybuilding, I think, because Mm -hmm. um, powerlifting, you you can't really over, I mean, you can overdo it, but you get injured. If you overdo it, you get injured. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you don't rest, you get injured and you don't get stronger and you don't make progress. Right. Um, and so it's, that has kind of helped balance me out that it's, it's very much like you have to, the best power lifter isn't the one that goes balls out on their lifts every day. It's the one that is able to find the balance between like rest, recovery, you know, strength, Mm -hmm. hypertrophy, all of it. Mm You know, let's we're going to fast forward now. We we went over uh, um, the aspect when you were a young lady. <clears throat> now we're fast forwarding to when Megan is an adult. Mm-hmm. How does Megan now deal with the anxiety, the depression, her eating? Yes, you're carrying more weight, more muscle. Does those thoughts still, are those thoughts still active? Yeah, and I think the difference is now it takes up maybe 5% or 10% of my brain versus 100%. -hmm. Um, The thoughts are definitely still there for sure. You know, I get really, I have a really hard time when my lifts are bad and I can't figure out why and I can't fix it. You know, um, it's okay if like, oh, my lifts are bad. I'm, I'm just really tired today. Or, oh, my lifts are bad. Like my knee hurts or something. But if I can't figure out why I didn't have a good lift, I get really frustrated and really in my head. Um, and I also notice anytime I'm really overworked or stressed um, with anything, it can be, you know, work relationships, like anything, my initial reaction is to go back towards what I can't, I know I can control, which is my food and my weight. So I am like, I do have to be really mindful about that. Mm -hmm. Knowing that like, Oh, like these thoughts are coming up, you know, it's like talking to a small child. Like, yes, I, those thoughts, like I hear you, I acknowledge that you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is probably why you're here and this is probably why we're not going to discuss that right now because I don't think it's going to benefit me in the long run. Do you ever think that, you know, here you are, you're posting these amazing photos of what you look like now and, you know, other people are going, wow, she looks amazing. I wish I looked like her. But then inside, you feel completely opposite. Um, to an extent, you know what I'm saying? Because you you just mentioned you, sometimes you still have those thoughts, you know, that may come around if you have a bad lift or something of that nature. I just really. Yeah, for sure. I just really, I guess, trying to ask, how do you balance it all out now to keep a healthy mindset? I mean, I think there are good days and bad days. I think, um, you know, I know, like, especially for photo shoots and stuff, like I definitely like, I tan, 
you know, all dry out the day before so that like everything looks like really shredded. Um, and then, you know, I'll see people commenting on, you know, a photo from like March that I posted, you know, yesterday and oh my God, your abs are so great. As I'm like sitting in bed, you know, eating popcorn, like looking at, and I'm like, they don't look like that now. But I also have enough um, confidence in myself that I know I can get back to that anytime I want to. Right. Um, so I think that's how I kind of balance it out, that I'm, I'm a lot more confident in my own, in my own abilities. And I, I know that if I set out to accomplish something, I can. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't, and like I said, you know, tracing back to like that vulnerability aspect, people don't always connect to somebody who looks like a shredded model 24 seven. Like, right. like how much credibility do I have if that's, you know, if I don't also experience those uncomfortable moments where I'm like in my pajamas with my hair shuffle, like, you know, eating something and not looking like a model, you know, right. um, I relate to more people. I build more connections with the latter than I do with my Instagram model photo. You know, let's talk about Instagram now that you have touched on that subject. You know, a few years ago, I just felt like, you know, in order to be an Instagram model, you had to Mm -hmm. be thin. Now Mm -hmm. we have more of a different culture of more thick fit. Yeah. Why do you feel like the culture has started to turn so much? Um, I have a, you know, I really don't know, but I have a couple thoughts that maybe I think that when Instagram started, really started taking off, there were a couple people that are about my age, maybe some like a couple years younger, a couple years older, who really got into the social media influencer, like at the right time. Mm-hmm. Like they were doing it right at the right time. They were very, very fortunate. They were doing it correctly. And like their Instagrams took off. And at that time, a lot of them or a lot of the ones that I know and follow were really tiny, skinny bikini competitors and models. Mm-hmm. And as those people with their giant platforms started to um, grow up and get older, I think that they matured a little bit and started taking into consideration their health. So you will see a lot of them post before and afters of like before me super shredded, like getting validated, really unhappy. My hormones were messed up, all of these things. And after now, like I've gained some weight, I have curves, like all that's great. And so I think it kind of shifted everybody over to like, oh, this is the new look, you know, Mm -hmm. this is what we're going for. Um, Because they maintained their social media status throughout that transformation. Gotcha. So that's like one of my thoughts. Um, What's thought too? Because I've seen, I've seen that happen a lot of times with women who, you know, I look at them in their bikini days and I'll be like, Mm, you're gonna you're gonna realize that maybe that's a little bit disordered like this isn't gonna keep you happy forever like you're gonna miss relationships and parties and social life and all of that stuff and you know in a couple couple years later they were like oh and by the way i know i looked happy but i wasn't i'll be like you think like yeah (laughs) um and I, and I just think also that there's for one reason or another there's a really great culture of um, confident women just embracing their bodies, no matter what they look like. Yeah, yeah. 
which I, I think is, is really great and beautiful. And I'm not really sure where that started, mm -hmm. um, but I support it. When you were talking about your confidence, when do you felt like your confidence personally really started to take effect? So I started when I um, got out of the treatment center out here it was that 2013. Um, I started doing yoga and I thought I was really good at yoga because I was, I've always been hypermobile. So I'm not, I was really flexible. I was doing all the poses <laughs> wrong, but I was really flexible. So of course I thought I was like a shoe in for like best yogi of the year. And, um, so I would just take classes. I take back to back classes every night. Cause I was like, well, I, you know, don't really have my, I'm healthy. I don't really have my eating disorder right now to like validate me. So, you know, here's something else that I can, you know, get a pat on the back for being really good at. And I decided to do teacher training because I wanted to be, I did not want to teach at all. I just wanted to be better. I just wanted to learn and be better. And um, I remember through that teacher training, I don't, I don't know what it was. I think it was that experience of like not being good at something mm -hmm. and like connecting with a bunch of other people who are really not good at something <laughs> and all just like kind of learning together. And it was, um, it was almost like therapy, like group therapy. There were like 12 of us, maybe 15. And we were there for 12 hours a week, you know, these long, like four hour lectures and practicing. And through the course of that, I had started to gain weight. Um, mostly because my mom said that it, I, I couldn't live with her if, you know, I didn't gain weight and I didn't have anywhere else to go because I didn't have a job. So I like started to slowly gain weight. And the only, I will say like the only reason I was able to deal with that was because I was going to these teacher trainings. Um, I remember going and sitting with these women and like being near tears because, you know, my weight had gone up or I'd eaten something that I felt guilty about. Mm -hmm. And like, I would just be sobbing. And it was the first time in my life outside of treatment that I just had to kind of sit through it. Yeah. I already like dipped out to ran for this training. So I wasn't going to skip it. <laughs> and I kind of just had to like sit through it and like deal with those feelings and like see that all of these people still appreciated me anyways, like yeah. regardless. And that all of these people were also coming into this room with all of their, you know, emotions and struggles in their lives and like very raw, vulnerable and like all just really connecting. Yeah. Um, and it became that way when I started to teach, just having all of these people come into this room and me having the opportunity to create a safe space for them to just be wherever they were and like take a break from their lives and from their thoughts and from, you know, their stress and whatever was going on in their head uh, and getting to do that. I wasn't able to then go home and do the exact opposite to myself. Right. How important do you think that is for women? You look into that. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so like, like I can't, I tell everybody to do yoga. I'm like, before you dish out like a hundred dollars on therapy, like just try a solid yoga class and why? Like, try to get involved with the yoga community. Um, I think it's that. You know, I tell a lot of my students that the strongest, the strongest yogi, the one who is, you know, the best at yoga isn't the one that like can do a bunch of handstands on, you know, Patreon or YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's the one that 
can take child's pose, which if you've never done yoga, it's the one where you're just like lying down on your stomach, like with your hands over your head, is the one that can take child's pose in the middle of class. It's the one that can say, I'm listening to my body and this is what my body needs right now. And it's really the one that knows how to quiet their own ego. Mm -hmm. That's what being good at yoga is. It's the ability to step outside of your ego and to listen to your body. Um, and it's, it's just a bunch of people who come in and allow themselves that space, that hour of their day where they can kind of move out of that need to, you know, be adulting. Right. And you breathe and like they can, you know, all of your shit will be there. Excuse my language. All of your no, stuff you will can. be there once you... <laughs> Be yourself. It'll be there once you leave the class. You know, right. you don't have to think about it right now. And how many of us, like none of us, nobody in their lives outside is like, I'm going to take an hour out of my day where I'm just okay being. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to be productive. I don't have to worry. This is just an hour for me. Like we don't, we don't do that. Um, and so I think teaching people how to do that on their mat in a yoga space where it's kind of guided mm -hmm. allows them to also do it in their life off of their mat that's amazing it really that i mean it really is amazing that you've gone through all of your personal struggles and the very thing that you become passionate about you connect and now here you are helping other ladies deal with what they deal with day to day in life. I mean, I feel like sometimes we go through shit for a reason. Yeah. Because there's mm -hmm. something on the other side that's bigger than us. Yes. And um, so with that said, I just want to tell you that that's, that's badass and that's awesome because Sometimes, you know, we got to put our feelings aside and think about the other person. And um, yeah. that may not always be easy, but it's definitely necessary. Yeah, I mean, um, if you've, I don't know if you've ever read A Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -mm. Um, but I forget who it was. I think his name was Victor Frankl. Maybe, but I might be wrong. I'm sure somebody will correct me, but he was a, a Holocaust a Holocaust victim. He was in a camp and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was, he said the difference, he studied what, what made the difference between people who are really able to survive mm -hmm. um, and make it through and what, and people who weren't people who just kind of like let them, let it go, like gave up. And he, he said it was creating a sense of purpose and meaning with your life. And that the people who are able to step outside of themselves and find purpose by giving, giving to others um, or whatever their purpose was, you know, um, those were the people that were able to, to keep going, to survive and to make it through. And I, I definitely feel like one of the things that keeps me going and that kind of can get me out of a dark space when I do feel like, you know, I'm a little bit down on myself is that, um, I, I can connect and I can offer things for other people. And it's, you know, being able to go into the yoga room and just have one person say like, I really needed that today. Mm -hmm. Or that stretch was exactly what my body needed. Like that, that makes my whole day. Mm -hmm. 
Like that makes it all worth it. I wouldn't even have to get paid. And where do you teach at for those who's going to be listening to this podcast that may want to stop in yes. and get a session? So I teach at Yoga 6 in Redondo Beach. Um, it's on Pacific Coast Highway above Whole Foods. And I teach at uh, Core Power. Um, we have a Redondo Beach and a Torrance location. I teach at both of those. That's awesome. And I do privates. So. Privates as well. So guys, yeah. be sure to hit her up if you're looking to get right, but also to de-stress and um, just let go, man. Just go and give yourself an hour to not have to think about day-to-day responsibilities and just just live for a second without feeling like you got to run to the next thing, got to get the next thing done. Um, I want to go into your weight training. You know, so Mm -hmm. many people have seen where you were and where you're at now. And what has the weight training done for you and how has it influenced your life the way that it has to keep you on the right track and lifting all the heavy shit that you lift that we get to see you pick up in in the gym what motivates you so uh when i started lifting it was i i had just done yoga teacher training and i i just wanted to get stronger you know so we have i teach um vinyasa yoga which is flow and i also teach sculpt which is yoga with weights and so originally i just went to the gym and i would like do you know a couple of the sequences that we did in sculpt or i would like google some influencers random workout and like do that and like back then it was all just like for women it was like a bunch of circuits and like cardio training um and i just remember being at the gym and i had like i you know i'd met a couple people and they were all squatting and I was like, oh, okay, like, let me try this. And I was really bad. And I really don't like being bad at things. Like, really don't like, like, I couldn't figure it out. It wasn't just a matter of strength. I was like, wow, this is like really technical and like trying to balance and all of that. Um, and I, I was really interested in just learning about it. Um, I've always been, or I won't say always, but like since doing yoga, I've always been really interested in uh, human anatomy. Mm-hmm. in how the body works and how everybody's body works a little bit different and like, you know, different muscle groups and like hip orientation and stuff like that. So I started researching, you know, squats and barbell squats and um, it came across like a couple women on social media and through blogs and stuff who power lifted and downloaded like a couple just beginner um, like linear progression uh templates and so and i got just really interested i think the thing that i really liked about it was that it it was completely your whole mind is completely occupied while you're doing the lift because if it's not you're Mm -hmm. gonna like hurt yourself really bad um versus i felt like with circuit training like my brain was like in eight different places and i was just (laughs) getting sweaty and doing the same thing over and over again and it got really boring and after a while, like you can't really pro- progress. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Somebody is calling me. Yeah. That was weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> so after a while, you can't like you run further or you run faster. And after a while, you can't run faster. So you're just spending your whole day doing more cardio, which yeah. 
and versus with powerlifting, I was really able to see progress day to day, whether it was adding weight to the bar or whether it was just figuring out that I need to turn my toes out a little bit more when mm -hmm. I squatted. So, you know, I, I could see progress really quickly with that, which is what I liked. Um, and so I just trained myself for about a year. And then I had a mutual friend who owned a gym and the gym had a powerlifting team. Uh, and he reached out to me on Instagram and was like, Hey, like we have a powerlifting team. If you want to join it, we would love that. Um, and I was like, I'm broke. Um, <laughs> I teach like six yoga classes. I just got certified. I have none of the monies. Um, and so he was like, ah, don't worry about it. And so I, you know, I met with their coach who's still my coach now mm -hmm. and started training with this team. And I was like, I never want to compete. I never want it to be something that I, I feel pressured to do or where I'm competing against other people. And then I, and, you know, everybody else was competing and I was like, okay, like I kind of want to, I kind of want to try competing. <laughs> And so, and the thing that I love about powerlifting is it's like, yeah, you compete in their places, but it's you versus you, mm -hmm. you know, the, the weights on the bar are in kilograms and like maybe 20% of the people can like add it up in their head. Nobody really knows what's on the bar except for you. Nobody really knows, uh, what is a PR except for you. Right. Um, and so I really like that. And I went into my first meet, like, this is just to see what I can do um and everybody is just so supportive because it's such an individual sport like yeah. everybody just wants to see everybody do really well yeah. and um so you know i just started getting better with that and started getting stronger and like of course my yoga practice um got stronger and um i started being able to like add fun things to my classes because you know i i knew more about the human body and um my coach broke away from the team. I want to say in 2019, uh, from the powerlifting team, he, he left the gym and he was like, Hey, like, I would love to work with you one-on-one. -on -one. And so I hired him, um, to be my coach one-on-one -on -one. Awesome. and, um, yeah. And it's, and he's become like, uh, an amazing, amazing friend. Um, and like, really great support for me in all areas of my life, including powerlifting, um, which is, it was just such a random, you know, connection, yeah. um, that you just never know who you're going to meet. And, um, so I've been competing since I want to say 2018. So I've been powerlifting since 2018 and then 2020, my gym shut down for, <laughs> My gym, my gym shut down, but then this other gym opened up in, in July. So I was pretty much only without a gym for like two and a half months. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, I was able to keep training, which was really great. That's awesome. Um, it's such a fascinating story that you have. I mean, So many people, when I posted that picture of you, was like, that's incredible. So many women were like, that's incredible. I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And um, 
I just want to tell you, I am personally proud of you for the progression that you have made in your life to be the woman that you are today, to conquering your goals, achieving whatever you set your mind to achieve, and inspiring so many other people, Megan. It's 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 almost, you know, so many people are poor and then they become rich, but mm-hmm. it was almost the same way for you, but physically. And now you're rich mentally more than ever by doing the things that you're doing. And, you know, it's obvious by the people that respond to you on Instagram and leave all the amazing positive affirmation that they leave for you on Instagram. How does that versus what you went through before, how does that now help you feel about yourself? Um, honestly, like it, it makes my day anytime. I, I'll have, I've had um, a couple parents actually reach out to me and say like, look, my daughter is going through this and I don't know what, what to do. Um, and, you know, hearing that, like, it hurts my heart. Um, but it also, like, makes me really happy that I can give them some hope. Mm-hmm. You know, that that my, my parents were told I'd be dead before I was 20. Like, you know, that there was really no hope. Um, and they, they physically my, told you this? Yeah, yeah. I had a I was in UCLA hospital and um the head doctor was like she's not going to make it like past 20. And it wasn't just because I was I was like physically sick, it was because mentally like I I was very defiant and I just did not want to get better. And they were like she's not she's just not going to. If she doesn't want to, there's nobody's going to keep her alive. Um and you know, just being able to give the family's hope that like you know it's possible mm-hmm. to change like miracles happen mm-hmm. so you know one way or another um or having people that are overweight reach out to me and be like look like mentally i go through the same things that you go through um and like it's the same thing like whatever end of the spectrum you're on like it's, mm-hmm. it's all the same you know yeah. food is food is just like the the addiction you know whichever way you choose to go with it it's still just a manifestation of like what's going on inside um and and being able to to help or to motivate people is not something that i ever thought that i would be somebody that that would do that or would be something that was available to me and so that is really Inspi- like helps me to know that I help other people. It keeps me going. It m- makes me feel like there really is a purpose for me um, moving forward and and staying in recovery. What would you say to a young lady that is possibly going to listen to this podcast? What would you say to them that is secretly fighting this demon alone and trying to figure it out because I want to give you a few 
minutes to really just just speak about what would you say to someone who is dealing with this that may see this video and hear this podcast? Um, that's really tough for me because, you know, when I was, when I was young, it really didn't matter what anybody said. I was going to do what I was going to do. Um, I do think that as a young girl, you think of getting over your eating disorder or recovering as completely losing all control over food and weight and health and that you just have to completely stop exercising and completely eat, you know, gain a bunch of weight and just not care about your health. And that's not the case that there is a, a way to find balance. Um, and there's a way to find balance and self-acceptance in that. Um, and that the, the self-acceptance and that feeling of just being okay with who you are and, and where you're at in your life and, you know, each meal not being a life or death experience or the scale not really mattering. I think that was what I never believed. I never believed that the number on the scale wouldn't really matter to me anymore or that what I ate that day wouldn't really matter anymore. Um, and at the end of the day, I just wanted to feel happy. And I thought that being in control of my food and my weight would make me happy. Um, and that the validation that I got from that would make me happy and it didn't. And that there is a way to not have those voices in the back of your head. Um, I, I always thought the recovery was like pretty much just being overweight. I thought that that was what I was just gonna have to stop caring. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I would always have those voices telling me that I should care more. Um, and it's just not the case. Like you can, you can find balance and you can work on improving yourself. Um, but it doesn't change how you feel about yourself as a person. Nice. So to, that was really all over the place. I really no, don't know how to like, concisely no, the, I, mean, I think the that, difference. Yeah. I think that was honestly as real as it gets. Because, um, you know, I see so many young men and so many young women, you know, they get bullied, they get disliked for this or that. And mm -hmm. sometimes you have to really watch what you say to someone else. Yeah. Because it may not mean anything to you but it may absolutely destroy that person inside and yeah um, I, totally I, I i just wanted to say that i just feel like you know with the time that we live in right now with so much just going on words matter so just watch what you say it doesn't cost you anything to be nice, to be kind. And um, I just also want to say to you that we thank you for coming on today's podcast and being so 
just outspoken, being so genuine and um, just real about your life. I feel like so many women and men live in hiding with this. Mm -hmm. And yeah. sometimes the toughest step you can take is just going forward and dealing with this and trying to get past it. And I understand there's so also a lot of men and women die every year of this disease, yeah. this eating disorder, um, eventually becoming anorexia. And um, I hope the right person or many of you that listen to this podcast, we all know someone who is dealing or has dealt with this issue in their life. So if you are listening to this podcast and you know someone, I would ask of you to share it when this um, becomes live and um, just let them hear it all the way through. Don't ask any questions. Just let them, I feel like just let them absorb what Megan has said, what Megan has gone through and also see where she's at now and how much better life is today. So Megan Joe, I want to thank you for coming on The Real World with Daryl Terrell. You're amazing. Keep being a tremendous influence in the world. And um, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so I'm much. I'm sure, like, I, I just hope that, like, you know, there's at least one, one person, I'm sure, in your audience that will benefit from this. And that's, like, totally, totally worth it. Well, you know, I think that there's going to be many. I think with... You know, so many men and women competing, so many men and women um, not being able to exist because of what someone else thinks or someone else says. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just those small steps and you start heading in this direction just from everything I listened to you say today or tonight, excuse me, but... Now I look at you and I, I look at your Instagram page and I'm going like, she's, she's making it. You're making it. But there's so many that don't make it that really need to hear this before they get to that point. And it's important for women like you to be outspoken so they can hear it or they can pass it on to their daughter or their son so they see what's possible. That's the biggest thing, is seeing that it's possible. See, she made it. You can do it too. And that's important. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so guys, this is Daryl Terrell with The Real World and Megan Joan, and we're out.